Have you ever attended a bedside vigil for a dying loved one? A person placed on life support, a heart that's old and weak and about to give out, lungs that maybe can no longer hold breath, an accident victim in a coma. The doctor's been in. He's sighed. Oh, there's nothing left for us to do. The family has gathered around to wait by the bedside, to wait on the inevitable. Hushed whispers fill the room. Someone dabs tears from their eyes. One by one, family members, they take their turns at the bedside of the victim. There's a heaviness in the air. You see, this is a scene that describes the 41-year ministry of Jeremiah. In essence, he conducted a bedside vigil for a dying loved one. But the dying person in Jeremiah's case was the nation Judah. Hey, this was the role that Jeremiah played in the waning days of Jerusalem's demise. At first, he encouraged the Jews to repent, to get help, to turn back to God. When it became apparent that they wouldn't, rather than wipe the dust off his feet and move on, God required him to stay by their bedside and pronounce judgment over the nation. Jeremiah is often called the 11th hour prophet since he ministered to the people that he cared about in their final throes of death, on their deathbed, so to speak. And of course, this made his job gut-wrenching and tear-provoking. We begin tonight here in chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. They say... If a man divorces his wife and she goes from him and becomes another man's, may he return to her again? Would not that land be greatly polluted? But you have played the harlot with many lovers, yet return to me, says the Lord. Now here's an interesting and a provocative verse. You remember Jesus said, because of the hardness of your hearts, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. You see, the law was a concession to man's sin, to his hardness of heart. And it was a means of trying to promote marriage. You see, prior to the law, to divorce your wife, all a man had to do was just send her away. But it was the Mosaic law that enacted a formal procedure for divorce. It required a waiting period. It forced a person to reconsider a rash decision. In fact, Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 4, added another deterrent to divorce. If you did divorce your spouse, regardless of the twists and turns life might take afterwards, you were never allowed to remarry the person you had divorced. Boy, this made you think through the decision in the first place. And yet here Jeremiah points out that this was not the way that God treated his own wife over the years. For he had made an exception for his own people, Judah. Though she had played the harlot, though she had committed spiritual adultery by pursuing other gods, though Yahweh had divorced her at times, if she was sorry, if she repented in his mercy, he always took her back. He had done so in the past and he would do so again. It's interesting, under God's own law, there would have been no hope, but God treated His people Israel, even in the Old Testament, with grace. Law says it's over. Grace says, let's start over. Under the law, the people cut ties, but 
God was willing to forgive and to mend his people. I'm told in verse 2, Lift up your eyes to the desolate hills and see, where have you not lain with men? By the road you have set for them like an Arabian in the wilderness, and you have polluted the land with your harlotries and your wickedness. God compares his people to a hooker working a street corner. She'll sell herself to anybody. Of course, here and in other places in the Bible, God compares sexual sin with spiritual infidelity. A prostitute traded her sexuality for money. Yet in God's plan, sex was never to be divorced from marital love and commitment. And in the same way, God wanted His people to stay faithful to Him in love and in commitment. Not give themselves to just anyone, to other gods who might provide some cheap thrill. You know, even today, God expects us to be faithful to our husband. We're the bride of Christ. He wants us to be faithful to Jesus. And yet, how often do we see Christians jumping in bed with what displeases their Lord just because it offers them a moment of pleasure or maybe a reduction in their stress level or maybe a break from their pain or loneliness? And yet, they'll jump in bed. They'll sell their soul in order to scratch an itch, to invite a pleasure. Is this not adultery? In God's eyes, it is. And he says, as a result, the showers have been withheld. and There has been no latter rain. Drought was the effect of Judah's unfaithfulness. God had withheld the rain. You have had a harlot's forehead. You refuse to be ashamed. In the ancient world, prostitutes identified themselves with a mark or a tattoo on their forehead. It was a method of advertisement. It was, in essence, saying, open for business. And here Jeremiah is saying that God's people are wearing a harlot's mark. They've renounced their husband to work the streets and to seek for themselves immediate profits. He says, will you not turn from this time? Will you not from this time cry to me, my father, you are the God of my youth? Will he remain angry forever? Will he keep it to the end? Behold, you have spoken and done evil things as you were able. In other words, the people, will they remember God? Will they remember that He was their Father? Will they repent? At one time, God was their Father. He had guided them. But now, they've rejected God and they've done evil things. The Lord said also to me in the days of Josiah the king, Have you seen what backsliding Israel has done? She has gone up on every mountain and under every green tree. And there played the harlot. And we talked last week how Canaanite idolatry was practiced on high hills called high places in the Old Testament. They were, idolatry was also practiced under green trees. High hills and green trees were places of idol worship. The idea of a high hill was simple enough. A hilltop was supposedly closer to the gods to whom you were praying. And green hills, I mean green trees, I'm sorry, they were trimmed as phallic symbols. Most pagan idols were fertility gods, and thus you prayed to them for the harvest or for reproduction. And sexual rites were conducted in the shade of these trees as part of this worship. The Canaanites were into these things. And yet, these were also practices adopted by Israel. 
See, the northern kingdom, Israel, had fallen into full-scale idolatry, this kind of idolatry. They, too, were making sacrifice on every high hill and under every green tree. God had sent prophets to warn Israel, to call her to repent, but she refused. And it was in 722 B.C. that Israel fell to the Assyrians. God judged the wicked nation for its idolatry. And Israel in the north should have been an example to Judah in the south. For God says in verse 7, And I said, after she had done all these things, return to me. But she did not return. And notice, and her treacherous sister Judah saw it. The northern and southern Hebrew kingdoms were sisters. They should have learned from each other. That's not what happened. The Lord says, Then I saw that for all the causes for which backsliding Israel had committed adultery, I had put her away and given her a certificate of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but went and played the harlot also. Despite the clear example of her sister and a galaxy of prophets who warned her, Judah committed the same sins as Israel to the north. Verse 9, so it came to pass through her casual harlotry that she defiled the land and committed adultery with stones and trees. And notice that phrase, her casual harlotry. Evidently, Judah thought her unfaithfulness to God was no big deal. She assumed that she and God had an open marriage. She thought she could still be married to God despite her multiple affairs and her late night rendezvous. She assumed that God thought in shades of gray, but not so. God thinks in black and white. He cared about her betrayals. He took them personally. There was nothing casual about her betrayals to God. He expected His people to be fully committed to Him. And don't you think that God just laughs it off if you go out on a sin binge? Or you say, oh, I'm going to take next weekend to sow my wild oats. Don't think God sees that and is happy with that. Not not at all. Don't, Don't assume that God doesn't care if His wife takes a weekend off from her marital vows. To go off on some sexual excursion. There is no such thing as casual harlotry to God. I mean, how would you like it if your wife said, Well, honey, this weekend I'm just going to go out and sow some wild oats. Wouldn't like that too much. No husband who loves his wife would accept such a proposition. And God certainly, certainly was offended when Judah took this attitude. God calls a backslider's tryst with this world serious infidelity, not casual harlotry. Well, notice verse 10. And yet for all this, her treacherous sister Judah has not turned to me with her whole heart, but in pretense, says the Lord. Now, the background for this verse is 2 Chronicles 34 and 35. For in the days of Josiah, a spiritual reformation took place in Judah. You remember the law of God had been found and it was read. And in response, Josiah had the idols removed and the temple cleansed and restored and the Passover reestablished. But evidently these good works represented an outward reform rather than an inward revival. 
You see, people were quick to jump on Josiah's bandwagon, not because they loved God, but because they thought the king was cool, that this was happening. This was the end thing to do. In other words, it was a pretense. It was a show. It wasn't really a heartfelt devotion. And remember, this is important to God. He wants all our love and our service and our devotion to come from our heart. He doesn't accept pretense. He wants sincerity and honesty. He wants us to have a heart commitment to Him. We're told, then the Lord said to me, backsliding Israel has shown herself more righteous than treacherous Judah. Oh my. See, here was God's conclusion. The nation that he had already judged to the north was more righteous than the one that he was pleading with to repent in the south. You see, at least Israel had been honest about her sin. At least they, she had gone out and, and given herself to idols and knew what she was doing. Knew that it was an affront to God. She didn't pretend that it was just a thing, that a no big deal to God, just a casual thing. She didn't take that attitude. Judah did. Israel didn't play the hypocrite. She was just blatant in her and brazen in her idolatry. She didn't pretend to love God when it was obvious that she didn't. But that's what Judah did. Judah went whoring while wearing her wedding ring. She sinned and pretended that God didn't care. This was a great insult to God. Verse 12. Go and proclaim these words toward the north and say, Return, backsliding Israel, says the Lord. I will not cause my anger to fall on you, for I am merciful, says the Lord. I will not remain angry forever. Only acknowledge your iniquity that you have transgressed against the Lord your God and have scattered your charms to alien deities under every green tree, and you have not obeyed my voice, says the Lord. Return, O backsliding children, says the Lord, for I am married to you. I will take you, one from a city and two from a family, and I will bring you to Zion. And here's proof of how loving and gracious the God is that we serve. For despite all that the northern kingdom of Israel had done and the ways she had sinned, the Lord still invites her home. Amazing. I believe these verses speak of a day yet future when Israel will be reconciled to her husband. When Jesus returns and establishes his kingdom, the Hebrews will no longer be two kingdoms, but will be one. They'll come to Zion and they will worship their Lord. Verse 15, and I will give you shepherds according to my heart who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. And here is a crucial verse all pastors should read and know and take to heart. In fact, did you know the word pastor? It means shepherd. And here we're told how to be a pastor or a shepherd after God's own heart. A pastor who pleases God and who rightly rightly represents God will feed his folks with knowledge and with understanding. He'll teach them the Bible. Remember Jesus and Peter after his resurrection, there on the shores of the Galilee? Three times Jesus told Peter, he says, if you love me, feed my sheep. This should be a pastor's top priority. You know, a pastor wears a lot of hats, trust me. But his most important priority 
is to feed God's people with God's Word. Over the years, I've declined invitations to dinner from folks in the church. Hope you've forgiven me. I've trusted you to understand. I've been at home working on my sermons for Sunday. You know, several years ago, I just concluded, if we don't go to dinner together, you'll probably still eat. But if I don't fix you a good meal from God's Word on Sunday and feed you well, I will have missed my calling and I will have starved a flock of God of which I don't want to be guilty. A pastor after God's own heart will feed his people with God's Word. And then verse 16 tells us, Then it shall come to pass, when you are multiplied and increased in the land in those days, says the Lord, that they will say no more, The ark of the covenant of the Lord, it shall not come to mind, nor shall they remember it, nor shall they visit it, nor shall it be made anymore. And this is amazing, an amazing prophecy. You realize, Jerusalem was the heart of the nation Judah. The temple was the heart of the city of Jerusalem. But the Ark of the Covenant was the heart of the temple. It was God's centerpiece. God's presence, His glory, rested over that two-foot by four-foot gold-plated box known as the Ark. It was a replica model of God's throne in heaven. And because of the ark's importance, over the centuries, this passage has been a puzzle to Jewish scholars and rabbis. The rabbis can't imagine a day when the ark won't be a significant thing. And yet here we're told no one will visit it. No one will even think of it. You know, even today, people clamor over the ark. Their serious speculation revolves around the ark and its whereabouts. People are out searching for its rediscovery, even as we speak. You know, some people believe that the sudden appearance of the ark will be the final impetus for the Jews to rebuild their temple. Over the years, distinguished rabbis, two of them in fact, Yehuda Getz and Shlomo Gorin, have gone on record claiming to have seen the ark of the covenant in the caverns under the temple mount. They believe it's being kept until the time is right. Oh, but theories abound about the ark's whereabouts. In the apocryphal book, 2 Maccabees chapter 2, verses 1-8, through 8, there is a legend that prior to the fall of Jerusalem at the hands of the Babylonians, prior to the temple's destruction, Jeremiah actually took the ark out of the Holy of Holies and he hid it in a cave on Mount Nebo near the Dead Sea. Jeremiah was protecting the precious ark from enemy hands. And when his servants went to mark the spot, Jeremiah told them, No, the Lord will return it at the appropriate time. And it's because of this story in 2 Maccabees that scores of discoverers have combed Mount Nebo in search of the missing ark. Other people have searched for the Ark of the Covenant in the caves of Qumran, where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found. Still others believe that the ark is in a church in Ethiopia. If you're an Indiana Jones fan, you might think that the ark is stuffed away on a shelf somewhere in the Smithsonian Institute. If you remember the movie. <laughs> but Jeremiah says that one day the Ark of the Covenant will become a forgotten thing, an insignificant relic, relic just a trivial object. Boy, today, if the ark suddenly appeared, it would be revered, even worshipped. 
Perhaps this is why God may be keeping it hidden. But what could reside in the future temple that would be so glorious that it would overshadow and dwarf even the sacred ark so that no one would even think of the ark again? What could possibly overshadow the ark in its importance? You're right. The presence of the King of Kings, Jesus Christ in the temple, would certainly make the ark irrelevant. When Jesus reigns, He'll reign from Jerusalem. And the symbol of God's presence, the ark, will be replaced with God's actual presence, His Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus on the throne, in the temple, will make the ark a relic and an irrelevant thing. And then verse 17 tells us, At that time Jerusalem shall be called the throne of the Lord, And all the nations shall be gathered to it, to the name of the Lord, to Jerusalem. No more shall they follow the dictates of their evil hearts. Zechariah 14 verse 16 tells us that during the kingdom age, during Jesus' thousand year reign on the earth, people will come to Jerusalem. They'll come annually from all over the world to worship the Messiah. Everyone will tour Israel during the kingdom age. Once a year you'll get to go up. And you won't need Pastor Sandy as your guide. Jesus will be your guide. He'll take you around. He'll show you the sights. What a day that'll be. And in those days, the house of Judah shall walk with the house of Israel. And they shall come together out of the land of the north to the land which I have given as an inheritance to your fathers. Isn't this a wonderful promise? You remember after Solomon, the kingdom split north and south, Israel and Judah. But now the prediction is is that this once divided kingdom will be united. North and south will be one again. But I said, how can I put you among the children and give you a pleasant land, a beautiful heritage of the host of nations? God's people here are wondering how he can fix their problems, how he can put them in a beautiful land. Possession of the land has been the thorn in the Middle East for the last hundred years. And yet here God promises to put them in a pleasant land. And not only that, but to make them the world's prominent people, the host of nations, as he puts it. And the solution is simple. What their efforts have failed to do, God will do. He will give them the land. But notice, and I said, you shall call me my father and not turn away from me. They will get the land one day if They call him father, and they become loyal to him. If all Israel would do this today, if they return to their father God, he would handle these issues. Well, we're told, surely as a wife treacherously departs from her husband, so have you dealt treacherously with me, O house of Israel, says the Lord. A voice was heard on the desolate heights, weeping and supplications of the children of Israel, for they have perverted their way. They have forgotten the Lord their God. Return, you backsliding children, and I will heal your backslidings. The word backsliding occurs 16 times in the Bible. 13 of those times in the book of Jeremiah. The other three are in the book of Hosea. And then seven of the 13 usages in Jeremiah appear here. In chapter 3, Jeremiah wants God's people to stop their backsliding and to race toward him like a child. Run into your father's arms. That's what he's calling out for them to do. 
pleading with them to do. Verse 22, Indeed, we do come to you, for you are the Lord our God. Truly in vain is salvation hoped for from the hills and from the multitude of mountains. Truly, the Lord our God is the salvation of Israel. Israel had vainly turned to the hills and hoped for help from other gods. And here is the big lesson. We mentioned it last time. This was what God was trying to teach His people. That a nation's security is found in its faithfulness to God. Hope America's listening. Our nation should also embrace that truth. Verse 24. For shame has devoured the labor of our fathers from our youth, their flocks and their herds, their sons and their daughters. We lie down in our shame and our reproach covers us. You know, sin is the great spoiler. It's the robber of what could have been if we'd only obeyed. He says, for we have sinned against the Lord our God, we and our fathers from our youth even to this day, and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God. Chapter 4, if you will return, O Israel, says the Lord, return to me. And if you will put away your abominations out of my sight, then you shall not be moved. Here's the cure. Put away your abominations. Get rid of those things that are an affront and an offense to God. And return to him. If you do, he promises to receive you. And to restore the relationship that you once had. And you shall swear the Lord lives in truth, in judgment, and in righteousness. The nations shall bless themselves in Him, and in Him they shall glory. Verse 3 is an important verse. For thus says the Lord to the men of Judah and Jerusalem, Break up your fallow ground, and do not sow among thorns. Throughout the Bible, seed is analogous to the Scriptures. The Word of God is like a seed. It contains life. And when planted in the heart of man, it produces fruit. But the seed is only as good as the soil in which it's planted. God's seed is potent. But it's our attitude, it's the soil of our heart that will either hinder or help the growth and power of that seed. See, if the ground of your heart has been tilled, if you've been honest with yourself, if you've recognized your sin, if you've humbled your heart and you have a desire to change, then the seed will take root and it will definitely grow in your life. But if the ground remains crusted over with self-denial and with pride and with complacency and with self-sufficiency, It's like throwing seed on the sidewalk and expecting it to grow. You're foolish. Even the best seed can never take root in that kind of soil. That's why he tells us, break up the fallow ground. Break it up. Sow the seed in fertile ground. And then verse 4. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord and take away the foreskins of your hearts. You men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my fury come forth like fire and burn so that no one can quench it because of the evil of your doings. Of course, circumcision was the cutting away of the male foreskin, and it was symbolic of the cutting away of sin. 
implied a spiritual surgery done by the Holy Spirit in our hearts. You know, Paul writes of this too in Romans chapter 2, verse 29. There he says, circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit and not in the letter. This is the sense of it here in Jeremiah. God tells the people of Judah to pray for the Holy Spirit to do a surgery on their hearts. They need to cut away the old, selfish, sinful desires. Verse 5, declare in Judah and proclaim in Jerusalem and say, blow the trumpet in the land, cry, gather together and say, assemble yourselves and let us go into the fortified cities. Set up the standard toward Zion. Take refuge, do not delay, for I will bring disaster from the north and great destruction. Now here Jeremiah he begins to warn of an imminent invasion. In ancient times, when an army attacked the people, those that were out in the surrounding suburbs would move into the city, within the shelter of the city walls. And here the call is going out to do just that. You know, blow the trumpet, gather together, assemble yourselves in the fortified cities. Jeremiah has become the Jewish Paul Revere. He's now racing through the streets in the countryside warning the Jews, the Babylonians are coming, the Babylonians are coming. He says the lion has come up from his thicket and the destroyer of nations is on his way. He has gone forth from his place to make your land desolate. Your cities will be laid waste without inhabitant. In Daniel chapter 7, around the same time by the way, but 900 miles east, Daniel saw a vision of an invading nation. Babel was symbolized as the lion. He says, For this, clothe yourself with sackcloth, lament, and wail, for the fierce anger of the Lord has not turned back from us. Jeremiah rightly saw the Babylonians as God's instrument of judgment. And it shall come to pass in that day, says the Lord, that the heart of the king shall perish, and the heart of the princes the priest shall be astonished and the prophet shall wonder. Then I said, Ah, Lord God, surely you have greatly deceived this people and Jerusalem, saying, You shall have peace, whereas the sword reaches to the heart. Now, realize that the Bible is the right record of what was said. But sometimes what people say in the Bible is actually wrong. And here is an example of that. Jeremiah says that God deceived the people. That he promised them peace when war was on the horizon. But that's not what God said. False prophets had come spreading lies. And God had allowed the false prophets to tell his people what they wanted to hear. They loved the lies, and so God gave them the false prophets. But God himself had told them the truth. Notice verse 11. At that time, it will be said to this people and to Jerusalem, a dry wind of the desolate heights blows in the wilderness toward the daughter of my people, not to fan or to cleanse. A wind too strong for these will come for me. Now I will also speak judgment against them. God is protect, predicting a desert storm. An army is coming, not to cool them, not to cleanse them, but to destroy them. He says, Behold, he will come up like clouds, and his chariots like a whirlwind. His horses are swifter than eagles. Woe to us, for we are plundered. And the he in this verse is the Babylonian general. 
the future King Nebuchadnezzar. O Jerusalem, wash your heart from wickedness that you may be saved. How long shall your evil thoughts lodge within you? For a voice declares from Dan and proclaims affliction from Mount Ephraim. Make mention to the nations, yes, proclaim against Jerusalem that watchers come from a far country and raise their voice against the cities of Judah like keepers of a field. They are against her all around because she has been rebellious against me, says the Lord. Judah's sin has found her out. Her sin is the cause for God's judgments against her. He says, your ways and your doings have procured these things for you. This is your wickedness because it is bitter because it reaches to your heart. Because God's people had broken his heart, now he is going to break their heart. You know, God loves us too much to allow us to prosper in our sin and to continue in our disobedience. This is why Hebrews 12 verse 6 tells us whom the Lord loves, he chastens. And here, though it's harsh, he is chastening his people Judah. Verse 19, oh my soul, my soul. I am pained in my very heart. My heart makes a noise in me. I cannot hold my peace because you have heard, O my soul, the sound of the trumpet, the alarm of war. Jeremiah, he he hears the battle sounds literally outside the gates. He hears the sobs of the people. He hears the bugles blowing and the armies mustering together. He feels war in the air. It grieves him that war is about to come upon his people. Destruction upon destruction is cried, for the whole land is plundered. Suddenly my tents are plundered and my curtains in a moment. How long will I see the standard and hear the sound of the trumpet? For my people are foolish. They have not known me. They are silly children, and they have no understanding. They are wise to do evil, but to do good, they have no knowledge. You hear what he's saying? Oh, they're smart when it comes to doing evil. They're skilled in evil, but they are a stranger to good. I beheld the earth, and indeed it was without form and void. And the heavens, they had no light. This is a flashback to the opening act of creation. You remember Genesis 1 verse 2. The earth was without form and void and darkness was on the face of the deep. That's what he's just described. What God is saying is that he is going to return the land of Judah to the same shapeless, sunless morass that he had in the beginning when he created the earth. This idiom is so pungent, it is so powerful, it's so strong that some Bible commentators consider these verses the most forceful and the most ominous in all of prophetic literature. Read properly, these verses should make the hair stand up on the back of your neck. There's no doubt the scope of this prophecy goes beyond the local judgment of Jeremiah's day and foreshadows the judgments that will occur at the end of the age. Verse 24 tells us, I beheld the mountains... And indeed they trembled, and all the hills moved back and forth. I beheld, and indeed there was no man, and all the birds of the heavens had fled. 
I beheld, and indeed the fruitful land was a wilderness, and all its cities were broken down at the presence of the Lord by His fierce anger. Here is creation in reverse. When God created the earth in Genesis, He started with a world that had no form and was void, and darkness was on the face of the deep. But then God added the light and the dry ground, and then the plants and the birds and the beasts, and then finally man. But here, when God gets through with His judgments, notice there is no man. The birds have fled. The fruitful land is no more. Everything now is broken down. It's creation in reverse. He says, For thus says the Lord, The whole land shall be desolate, yet I will not make a full end. See, at the end of the age, much of the planet will be destroyed. It will be a collateral damage in God's judgments. But the earth's judgment won't be complete. Its destruction won't be complete, for God will begin a massive restoration. Yet here, Jeremiah, he says that God will bring the earth to the brink of its annihilation. He says, For this shall the earth mourn, and the heavens above be black, because I have spoken. I have purposed and will not relent, nor will I turn back from it. Again, it's obvious the scope of Jeremiah's prophecy has gone beyond just the Babylonian invasion to events that will occur at the end of history. And this is often what happens in Bible prophecy. The prophet starts out with a local, immediate judgment, but his vision spills over and looks future to the end of time when cataclysmic judgments will rock the earth. Those judgments we read about in Revelation chapter 6 through 19. Well, verse 29 says, The whole city shall flee from the noise of the horsemen and bowmen. They shall go into thickets and climb up on the rocks. Every city shall be forsaken, and not a man shall dwell in it. And when you are plundered, what will you do? Though you clothe yourself with crimson, though you adorn yourself with ornaments of gold, though you enlarge your eyes with paint, in vain you will make yourself fair. Your lovers will despise you. They will seek your life. Now remember his previous grievance against them that they had played the harlot. Babylon will invade Judah because Judah has been worshiping Babylonian gods. The Jews committed spiritual adultery with the idols of the east. And now Jeremiah is saying to them, when the army comes upon you, it doesn't matter how dressed up you look, how flirtatious you are, you'll be crushed by their judgments. The adulteress's lovers will turn on them. They've been court, Judah has been courting the idols of the east, but it's the people of the east that will bring judgment against them. The idols they've worshipped won't save them. They will destroy them. For I have heard a voice of a woman in labor, in anguish as of her who brings forth her first child. The voice of the daughter of Zion bewailing herself. She spreads her hand saying, Woe is me now, for my soul is weary because of murderers. Judah will weep loudly like a mother in labor pains. This is the same idiom used throughout the Bible when it comes to the end times and the great tribulation and the second coming. When judgment comes, it'll be sharp and it'll be sudden like a labor pain. Chapter 5 begins, Run to and fro through the streets of Jerusalem. See now and know. 
and seek in her open places if you can find a man, if there is anyone who executes judgment, who seeks the truth, and I will pardon her. This sounds like Genesis chapter 18. You remember Abraham's conversation with God over the destruction of Sodom? Abraham asked God if he could find 50 righteous men in Sodom, would God spare the city? And God said that he would. But that's when Abraham's chutzpah sort of kicked in. (laughs) He started haggling with God in traditional Middle Eastern fashion. If you've ever been to Jerusalem with me, you've been in the bazaars and you've had the opportunity to bargain with the, the vendors. Haggling, bargaining is what they're good at. And so Abraham, he starts haggling with God. He says, well, Lord, what about 45 righteous men? God says, okay. What about 40? What about 30? Will you spare the city for 30 righteous men? God says, sure. What about 20? What about just 10? I don't know why Abraham stopped at 10. I've always wondered if Abraham had tried to go lower. God is merciful. Maybe he would have gone all the way down to one. Well, here God says he'll spare Jerusalem if Jeremiah can find just one righteous man. Realize God doesn't want to destroy his people. He gets no pleasure from judging his people. He would far prefer to bless and nourish than to judge. And yet Jeremiah can't find just one righteous man. And this reveals an interesting detail about Pastor Jeremiah's 41 years of ministry. Apparently, he didn't have a single disciple to point to as a success story. Jeremiah is an extreme example of why a pastor should beware of a common trap for pastors. You can't always measure a successful ministry by counting the buns and the seeds. Jeremiah was faithful to God's calling. He was one of the most godly men in all of the Bible, yet he didn't have a single convert he could point to as a diligent disciple. It can happen. Faithfulness doesn't always attract a crowd. Verse 2. Though they say, as the Lord lives, surely they swear falsely. O Lord, are not your eyes on the truth? You have stricken them, but they have not grieved. You have consumed them, but they have refused to receive correction. They have made their faces harder than rock. They have refused to return. Well, they say, oh, the Lord lives, but then they don't live like it. Jeremiah had been sent to a stubborn bunch. Here he says you can see their obstinance, their stubbornness. It's etched in their face. This is why in chapter 1 God told Jeremiah not to be afraid of their faces. Not to be intimidated by their body language. Therefore I said, surely these are poor They are foolish, for they do not know the way of the Lord, the judgment of their God. I will go to the great men and speak to them, for they have known the way of the Lord, the judgment of their God. Now when Jeremiah was rejected by the common people, he went to the educated, to the men who knew the ways of the Lord, the theologians and the seminarians and the Bible college graduates. He says, but these have altogether broken the yoke and burst the bonds. He found, Jeremiah found, that the more educated the men were, the more rebellious they had become. Hey, you know, when you bring spiritual truth into an academic setting, then suddenly you subject it to intellectualism and smugness and arrogance. 
Pride comes in many forms, but none is more blinding and ultimately more damning than spiritual pride and egotism. He says, therefore, a lion from the forest shall slay them. A wolf of the desert shall destroy them. A leopard will watch over their cities. Everyone who goes out from there shall be torn in pieces because their transgressions are many. Their backslidings have increased. When you backslide from God, you expose yourself to multiple dangers. I wish I could just pound that into your head tonight. Backsliding from God is not a shortcut. It's not. It's the long, long way, the long and painful way around. When you backslide from God, you set yourself up for multiple dangers. For the house of Israel and the house of Judah have dealt very treacherously with me, says the Lord. They have lied about the Lord and said, It is not He, neither will evil come upon us, nor shall we see sword or famine. And the prophets become wind, for the word is not in them. Thus shall it be done to them. There were false prophets who had denied Jeremiah's warnings. They were saying, Ah, oh, that's not the Lord. God promises us peace and safety, not this judgment Jeremiah is talking about. But here God says they're full of hot air. They're like the wind. Verse 14, Therefore thus says the Lord God of hosts, Because you speak this word, Behold, I will make my words in your mouth fire, and this people wood, and it shall devour them. Wow, talk about choking on your words. God is saying, you'll be burned by what you said. Behold, I will bring a nation against you from afar, O house of Israel, says the Lord. It is a mighty nation. It is an ancient nation, a nation whose language you do not know, nor can you understand what they say. You recall Babel was an ancient nation. It was the very first nation founded by the notorious Nimrod. At the time, God wanted man to spread out, but instead man gathered together. Nimrod founded Babel in disobedience. And now Babel is going to be used by God to judge his own people. He says, their quiver is like an open tomb. They are all mighty men. And here God is speaking of the Babylonian army. He's saying their quiver is like an open tomb. In other words, their arrows never miss. I mean, whatever they shoot, they end up filling up tombs. They're all crack shots. And they shall eat up your harvest and your bread, which your sons and daughters should eat. They shall eat up your flocks and your herds. They shall eat up your vines and your fig trees. They shall destroy your fortified cities in which you trust with the sword. Babylon's victory will be extensive. They'll take the blessings that God intended for his own people as booty back to Babylon. As plunder. Nevertheless, in those days, says the Lord, I will not make a complete end of you. Now, God keeps telling us this, doesn't he? Though his judgment will be severe, it won't be complete. For God isn't through with Israel. He's made promises to the Hebrews that are eternal, and God will fulfill them. Verse 19, and it will be when you say, why does the Lord our God do all these things to us? Then you shall answer them, just as you have forsaken me and served foreign gods in your land, so you shall serve aliens in a land that is not yours. 
Since they love their foreign gods, God sees to it that they'll spend some time in a foreign land. You know, isn't it odd that they ask the question, why does the Lord our God do these things to us? What do we do? Why is God being so bad bad to us, so mean to us? And, And they're not even seeing the sin and the offense that they've been to God. They're not even seeing their own sin, that they're the cause of their own problems. How often is that the case in our lives? Why'd God do this to me? Well, why have you been walking around like ignoring Him and doing the things that displease Him? We need a we need a real pill, you know. We need to take a real pill from time to time. Get real with ourselves and, and with the cause of our situations. He says, "Declare this in the house of Jacob and proclaim it in Judah, saying, Hear this now, O foolish people, without understanding.'" Who have eyes and see not, and who have ears and hear not. Do you not fear me, says the Lord? And isn't this the bottom line? Do we fear the Lord? You know, do we really take Him seriously? See, they had taken God and His blessings for granted. They had not feared the Lord. He says, will you not tremble at my presence, who have placed the sand as the bound of the sea by perpetual decree, that it cannot pass beyond it. And though its waves toss to and fro, yet they cannot prevail. Though they roar, yet they cannot pass over it. I mean, God is showing the scope of His jurisdiction. What king has established the boundaries of the sea? Yet this is what God has done. He said, but this people has a defiant and rebellious heart. They have revolted and departed. They do not say in their heart, let us now fear the Lord our God who gives rain, both the former and the latter, in its season. The former and the latter rains were the spring and the autumn rains. He reserves for us the appointed weeks of the harvest. Your iniquities have turned these things away, and your sins have withheld good from you. Sin can create negative consequences in our lives. Here God delayed and withheld the rain. This was devastating to an agrarian society that depended on the former and the latter rains. God wanted to get their attention. For among many people, or from among my people, are found wicked men. They lie in wait as one who sets snares. They set a trap. They catch men. As a cage is full of birds, so their houses are full of deceit. Therefore, they have become great and grown rich. They've become rich off the backs of the poor. False prophets had deceived innocent people. They were scam artists. They have grown fat. They are sleek. Yes, they surpass the deeds of the wicked. Jeremiah here is speaking of the false prophets. Religious people who were greedy and who were evil. In fact, their evil deeds had surpassed those of the wicked. And they were supposedly religious. He says, they do not plead the cause, the cause of the fatherless. Yet they prosper. And the right Of the needy, they do not defend. Shall I not punish them for these things? Says the Lord, shall I not avenge myself on such a nation as this? These are preachers who show pictures of themselves in faraway lands, helping the disadvantaged and then asking for your donation. They use the needy, but the plight of the or the right of the needy they do not defend. And God asks, Shall I not punish them? He will. Now notice verse 30. What a sobering verse. An astonishing and horrible thing 
has been committed in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely, and the priests rule by their own power. And my people love to have it so. But what will you do in the end? You know, we get angry at the crooked preacher who scams for money. Or the pastor who rules his church with an iron grip and misuses God's flock. We get justifiably angry at those situations. But think it through. Who is it that allows these leaders to get away with their crimes? It's the folks who sit under their leadership and give money at their behest and keep them uh, in operation. And these people, the people who give their money and support these leaders, aren't always ignorant and gullible. No, they've been promised a hundredfold return. Their own greed has blinded them to the pastor's greed. They allow themselves to be abused because they're in awe of the pastor's celebrity. And their involvement in his ministry is going to feed their ego. You see, they're not innocent. They're guilty themselves, perhaps of different sins, but of sin nonetheless. You see, when corruption flourishes in the church, it's not only because of evil leaders. They have an accomplice. The prophets prophesy falsely, and the priests rule by their own power. And my people love to have it so. It's the carnality of Christians that allow heavy-handed and greedy pastors to get away with their abuse. It's the star-struck Christian that excuses the leader's sin. A worldly Christian wants his leader to have the accruements of the world. It's sad. What's really sad is to watch the sincere pastor, the humble, legitimately called man of God, who's careful not to ask for a single dime to watch that man go without, while churchgoers fill up the coffers of the slick preacher who prides himself on being able to work the crowd. You know, there's an old saying, I'm sure you've heard it, people get the leadership they deserve. People get the leadership they deserve. And I think it's true in the church. Manipulative and money-hungry pastors are only part of the problem. Sadly, there's a part of the church that likes the show and will tolerate it too far. God help us.